1: Joe, if you're out there, uh, get in touch with me. I have some ideas about cross party caucuses and other things. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius here with ProPublica's Darren Lynn, Box.com's Andrew. Prokop. And we're going to talk about Joe Manchin. Um, He is a United States Senator from the state of West Virginia. He is the Median senator in a closely divided Senate and also the subject of a new Andrew Prokop profile, which is excellent and talks a lot about sort of Manchin's history and the political trajectory of West Virginia um, and coal country. And yeah, people may not know this, but, you know, as recently as the 1990s, West Virginia was a left leaning state um, and now it's one of the most conservative states.
2: They voted for Michael Dukakis in 1988.
1: Yes. But I would say, to, to me, my sort of biggest takeaway, you know, in, in practical political terms from this is that you should probably not think about Joe Manchin as having a lot of really firm ideological commitments, in which the question on everything is, what does Joe Manchin in his heart of hearts believe that he might Go for so much as that Manchin has a strong uh, procedural belief in the kind of way he wants to practice politics. And that way is just a little bit at odds with the polarized dynamic on Capitol Hill. But like he's very happy to take on gun control or immigration, like, like, tough social issues that are not necessarily super popular in West Virginia. But like his idea on all of these things is that he should be a convener of of compromise measures. And that goes back to his West Virginia politics.
2: Yes, this has been a through line to his entire career. So he first got into politics in the 1980s in the West Virginia state legislature and at the time there was kind of a, a left flank and a right flank to the West Virginia Democratic Party and he was definitely on the right flank he was more aligned with business interests and uh, he had some clashes with unions and when he ran for governor in 1996, that proved to be a big problem. There was a pro-union candidate who he ran against, and uh, Mansion uh, lost in the primary. And but after that is when he really um, underwent his political transformation. He worked to win over the unions and and uh, c- created this kind of new persona as the convener of of compromise measures, the guy who will bring everything to the table, who wants to come up with some sort of agreement that everyone can live with, even if it's not something that everyone's happy or thrilled about, they can live with it. And uh, so that worked to get the unions on his side when he ran again in 2004. And when he was governor, it worked to make him an incredibly popular governor. And uh, if you look at his record as as governor, you know, the state continued to suffer serious economic problems. Its population continued to drop. You know, it, it wasn't as if things were all rosy there, but Manchin had a nose for the political style that would really appeal in the state. He, he wanted to be seen as doing a lot of things. He had a bill for everything. What he loved most was having a big signing ceremony with everyone around and and, and having something actually be accomplished. And substantively, uh, he, he probably did two things that stand out the most. He phased out the, the food tax in the state and he overhauled the workers' compensation system. But but, you know, more broadly, he he was skillful at, um, you know, exploiting. He, he's definitely not a populist, but he uses populist imagery. You know, he's always on a motorcycle. He's always shooting guns to achieve this kind of um, consensus building style of politics. But then, of course, the question is, what happens when that style of politics makes it to the modern polarized Congress and the United States Senate?
1: Well, and and I think I I, I just something to to clarify here because I think it, it it helped explain things to me was that he, as governor, he did like a large quantity of things, but I would say a small like substance of things, right? It was like the the idea was to show that there was action being taken on all kinds of things that people were concerned about, but the action was generally not very dramatic, right? It was like, if you went down the list and you you could imagine like a climate bill, a gun bill, a, a tax bill, a childcare bill, right? Like you could, you could list like 50 progressive priorities, but then like on each of them, you do some tiny thing, but then it's bipartisan, right? And so the idea is people would look at it and they'd be like, okay, he's tackling the issues that matter to me and there's not a lot of people yelling and fighting so it's like probably good and it was very politically i it's very politically successful like like people really liked it even though even though i don't think anybody looked at the manchin years as governor and was like aha the fundamental problems of west virginia have been solved um but like people were really into it
2: yeah exactly and um you know the nature of coming up with Bipartisan agreements that make every important interest happy is that no one's going to be harmed too much and that often um, not much is actually going to change like it involves watering down um, more aggressive proposals for change and and. And, you know, making sure there's there's nothing that anyone is going to totally freak out about. And as a political strategy for um, for building popularity and for getting people together, it 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 did work uh, extremely well for him uh, in a way that that has allowed him to defy the changing partisan gravity in the state as as Republicans have taken over as the Democratic Party has collapsed, especially in the last decade there. And, you know, he's He's such an outlier in the modern U.S. Senate. Trump won his state by 39 points in 2020, and and nobody else is in the same league as as far as the mismatch uh, between the presidential candidate in their state and um and and their own party. But you know, for people progressives who who want wider ranging fundamental change, or or even just just really. Uh, substantive change reforms or taking on the power of uh, of important interests, uh, this is a style of politics that they're not going to love because it it very deliberately does not try to do anything like that.
0: I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of issues where this bring everyone to the table model like works and doesn't work, right? Because it was so familiar to me, uh, you know, as someone who's like familiar with the last... 15 years of attempts to pass immigration reform like yes the bring everybody to the table and we'll hammer we'll find something that gives all of them enough of what they want that they won't want to torpedo the whole thing was exactly the model for passing a massive comprehensive immigration reform bill and like that is that works in two cases it works when there's a single dimension on which you have like an interest group that wants quantity X and an interest group that wants greater or smaller quantity Y and you just like find the point at which it's close enough to splitting the difference that you're muting whatever opposition, whatever side is further away from it is willing to suck it up and take it. Or it works on complicated issues where the things that each group wants aren't diametrically opposed to each other. They want, they just have substantively different priorities. And so you figure out a combination of getting enough of the thing that you really want without, you know, giving you things that are going to become too much of a problem for you later on. But it's easier to kind of avoid those pitfalls because the things other groups really want aren't your kind of bright line, can't take this. You can see this as being politically successful without without being very well adapted to ideological trends, really, because so much of the difference between the West Virginia Democratic Party in which Joe Manchin came up and the current Senate is that, like, it's not a matter of interest groups shifting are going to determine shifts in partisan power. Uh, There isn't, I mean, trends right now in terms of, the Senate depend a whole lot on whose seats are up in any given cycle, and to a certain extent on like changes in demographic trends, which are understood to kind of be broadly associated with like the party's images, but not very much. It's not like the you know National Homeowners Associations of America are going out there and telling white suburban women that they should start voting for Democrats. So there isn't really any organized body that you can bring to the table and you know mollify or buy off. And at the same time, the kind of the idea of partisans voting against something because it's going to benefit the other party politically is kind of the killer app for the Manchin model, right? Because there isn't anyone you can successfully poach off if they are in a collective action problem where their individual interests are less important than the collective interest of the party to oppose things. So it's useful, I think, to think a little bit about like the kinds of issues that Manchin is drawn to in this framework, where like gun control is a pretty classic issue of, Yes, there are ideological concerns, but if you take your proxy for gun rights as the gun lobby or the NRA, those are organized entities that can make compromises and that have enough credibility to signal to the base that this isn't something they should revolt over. That like, that's something that kind of makes sense for a Manchinian politics. But there are plenty of issues. I mean, and obviously the like meta issue of the filibuster on which there isn't any path to success that involves bringing enough of the people to the table that they all feel represented because there are people who would rather not be at the table and see anything pass.
1: Well, I I want to put a pin in the filibuster Mm -hmm. and and talk about that second. I feel like a sort of central issue for, for mansionism in the contemporary world is precisely that he's correct that this style of politics worked really well for him, but that like, the, like, Mitch McConnell wasn't born yesterday, right? Like, he doesn't want Joe Manchin to broker a lot of deals that wind up passing 70 to 11 with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren plus nine Republicans voting no. And they do bipartisan signing ceremonies. And Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney and Susan Collins all talk about how much they appreciate Joe Manchin and Joe Biden's hard work on this. Like, like that would be really bad that would be that would be a dumb tactics for senate republicans whereas if they can be intransigent then you get to Manchin's discomfort with unilateralism. Kristen Cinema's relatively conservative, I think, substantive views. The fact that a whole bunch of other Democrats, you know, Maggie Hassan and and Catherine Cortez Masto, should probably distance themselves from the base on at least one issue or another. And then you get infighting, right? You get people yelling at Cinema because she didn't do the $15 minimum wage. And like, that's the that's the cycle you want to generate if you're a Republican as like the Democratic coalition collapses into into infighting. And I mean, this is my my question for you, Andrew, but really it's a question for, for Manchin. mansion. I mean, he came across to me in the piece, like mansion thinks that if Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer would just like take the mansion pill, that they could unlock the kind of partisan dynamics that prevailed in the West Virginia state legislature 15 to 20 years ago. But that doesn't seem true to me. Like, I don't I don't think that Joe Biden disagrees with him about any of this. And I don't really think Chuck Schumer disagrees with him either. And I also don't think Senate Republicans disagree with him. And I actually think like, that's why this doesn't work is that like they don't they don't want a successful, uncontroversial, moderate Biden administration that rides to re-election on the back of vaccinations, COVID reopening, and a flurry of modest popular initiatives across the issue space. Well, I think the reality here
2: is that there are a lot of different issues uh, at in which there are different dynamics. Like you mentioned Mm -hmm. minimum wage. Manchin told me he says we, we could pass an $11 minimum wage increase tomorrow. We had the Republican votes. The resistance, he says, uh, he believes very clearly is that Bernie Sanders and uh, the left of the Democratic Party are so uh, set on 15 that they won't give in. So that's an issue where he places the blame pretty much wholly on Democrats. There are other issues, as Dara alluded, where it really does seem like this approach is not going to work. Guns is the big example, because after the Newtown shooting in 2012, uh, Manchin worked with Senator Pat Toomey to create a new background check bill, the Manchin-Toomey bill. And uh, it it was very watered down. It it would it would do relatively little to prevent further mass shootings. And it got filibustered to death. Uh, There were. There weren't sixty votes, even for that. And my interpretation of that, and I think it this would also apply to large-scale immigration changes today, too, is is that certain issues are just so polarized that issues that really key into people's identity, issues that supercharge uh, the base on either side. You know, Obamacare is another example there. Once Obamacare became defined on the right as, as a terrifying, threatening thing, then no Republican senator was going to agree to give their votes to help pass it with like some minor fiddling around the edges of of changes because it had been defined as as an existential horror.
0: And the the other thing I would throw in there is once it becomes an identity issue, there becomes no organized interest that you can bring to the table to negotiate, who is both going to retain the credibility to sell it to the base and like be willing to, you know, stand up for a position that will be at least for a time unpopular. Like, in a world where the NRA thinks that it is going, that it has the loyalty of its members no matter what, it's maybe a little bit more willing to compromise than a world in which the NRA can do what it wants, but there is still an entrepreneurial space for a lot of conservatives to say, this is an unacceptable infringement on Second Amendment rights, and the NRA is selling you out, and that backfires badly on them and creates negative incentive.
2: And to be clear, the NRA did not support the mansion. To me, Bill, and uh, they had endorsed Mansion in in 2010, a few right. years earlier, and then they they turned against him and and tried to defeat him for re-election after that. And that is probably, uh, I mean, it could be just their own calculations, but I, I'm sure it is also based on uh, what their members actually want, and and they don't want any new gun control measures,
0: right, or what they were afraid of their members doing. But I wanna I wanna push even
1: on even on this minimum wage issue because, like, I. Uh, agree with Manchin that the $15 an hour fanaticism is like not that helpful, and that left-wing members should come down to a lower number. But like the way I think this works is that Joe Manchin needs to name a number, and then the left-wing members should come down to that number, and then they should pass a minimum wage increase to the number that Joe Manchin has picked, and it's going to pass 51.50. And to me, it is true that part of the problem is left wing intransigence, but the other part is Manchin not wanting to accept that if the minimum wage goes up, it's going to be a partisan measure in which he is the, the decider. That what he wants is for there to be over 10 Republicans who will pick a number for him. But the number they have picked is 725. Like they controlled Washington for four years. Minimum wage increase is very popular. Uh, Donald Trump occasionally indicated that he might be open to a minimum wage increase. They didn't put $9 on the table. They didn't put $11 and federal preemption of state increases. They didn't put uh, 10 and index it to inflation so we don't need to keep having this issue, right? The closest we've come is that since the election. Right. Uh, you know, only in 2021, not when Trump was president, Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton introduced a bill that would do a $10 an hour minimum wage and mandatory E-Verify. And they've only got six Republicans for it. So, like, if every single Democrat agreed to do that, it still wouldn't pass. Right. And like, I agree that this sucks. Like, I think this is a really bad situation for America, like, it's not good, but like, where are these votes? Like, where are these Republicans who want to do compromises with, with Manchin? Cause like, they want Joe Manchin's Senate seat. You know what I mean? Like, not just Biden, everything else. It's just like this thing with the NRA, right? Like, it's so much better for the NRA for a bill to collapse and for them to run against Manchin than to be like, hooray, we've reached a reasonable compromise on background checks. I don't know. Like, it, I, I just, it, it it seems like a, like a fantasy to me. Yeah, so this is the other
2: issue, the partisan logic and incentives for the Republican Party and trying to retake the Senate, which, you know, they can retake if they flip just one seat. And, you know, I go through in the piece a lot of the bipartisan accomplishments that Manchin actually was involved in and that uh, the Congress in general was, uh, which happened in, in 2019 and 2020 and I interviewed Francis Lee a political scientist and and she's talked a lot about partisan incentives for gridlock in the past and she told me that what happened over the last congress really kind of shook up her uh her priors and and her beliefs about what was happening uh th- there was just so much more on covid and in response to covid but also on other issues a lot of stuff passed and got very little attention. And, and those are kind of the issues where it does seem to be possible to do this. The issues that, you know, sort of by their nature, they won't get a ton of coverage on Fox News as like horrible threats to America. But um, so Manchin worked with Lisa Murkowski for a comprehensive Energy bill, and it's obviously nothing that what the left would want, uh, but it, it, it is pretty close to what Manchin representing a coal state would want, and uh, he had some real alignment with Republicans there. But he made enough Democrats happy too to be able to pass that. Um, you know, he managed to get an agreement on um, rescuing the coal miner pension plan. And he and Lisa Murkowski helped jumpstart the stalled talks on a a second COVID relief bill after the election. Now, I think the commonality here is that all of this happened while Republicans were desperately trying to retake the Senate uh, or to hold hold on to the Senate, uh, which includes after the election because Georgia hadn't yet voted. So uh, the argument here is that Republicans you know, when they actually have power and are trying to hold on to power, then of course they want to get things done. But once they no longer do and their incentive is to obstruct and to make Democrats look bad, then they're just going to revert back to that mode. Now, I I don't think that is the case on literally every single issue, though. Like we just saw there was a a bill about anti-Asian hate crimes that passed with an overwhelming majority. And I think this bill would not do very much, but it was um a, as we've talked about previously, the kind of style of mansion politics is to pass this stuff that can get broad consensus and um maybe it doesn't do that much, but uh, everybody's holding hands and and singing kumbaya and and uh, everyone looks good as a result
1: let's uh, let's take a break and and I want to talk about the filibuster and how this plays into this.
0: I also want to talk a little more about the secret Congress equilibrium, too.
3: B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
1: So I feel like my biggest disagreement with with Manchin throughout all this is that he seemingly under increasing pressure to do something about filibustering has like really escalated his rhetoric from I don't know, like normie senator status quo bias. I don't really want to make this change to like in in your piece, Andrew, he's like, this will be the end of our democracy and like like crazy kind of stuff. And it just always strikes me that if you just think narrowly about this kind of deal making, that like in a 50 vote Senate, you would get more of these mansion type deals because a handful of moderates from the other side would put you over the top and you'd get it done, right? Like he and John Tester, um, you know, would be enough to put a Republican initiative over the top. And Mitt Romney and and his best friend, Lisa Murkowski, would be enough to put a Democratic initiative over the top and really small groups of moderates, right? Like you could get – like, six or seven of the most moderate members hash stuff out and, like, really get things done. And it's the 60 vote threshold, which has come to mean that, like, you need members who are not moderate to be in on the deal actually makes it totally impossible. And he seems to have this idea that without the filibuster, somehow he would now need to, like, agree with all of Elizabeth Warren's ideas. But, like, he could just say no and do this other stuff. Like, do do his do his Lisa Murkowski deals.
2: Yeah, I mean, he could obviously if the filibuster was gone, then Democrats still couldn't pass anything without his vote. But I think he believes this is where the problem is, is in his view, not just Republicans. He thinks the problem is that Democrats aren't compromising enough and that he thinks that if everything was 51 votes, Democrats would craft all of their bills to just appeal to the 50th vote, um, 51st being uh, the vice president, obviously. And that that would lead to bills that are much more to the left. And that because they know the filibuster exists, that is why we have this kind of consensus forcing mechanism for almost anything that can get through Congress. It has to be broadly acceptable to both parties, except in the case of budget reconciliation. And, you know, he he sees how these budget reconciliation bills are written. He sees how the Biden stimulus bill was written, and it was written to pretty much uh, go as far to the left as the 50th uh, senator, the 50th Democrat would be willing to stomach, and uh, and he doesn't really like that. He, you saw him talking about the infrastructure, dueling infrastructure plans this weekend, and he likes the Republican infrastructure plan. He doesn't think it's a joke of an offer that's far below what, what the nation needs. He doesn't think that's unreasonable, and he thinks it's a good starting point for talks, but I think he is correct that if this happens through budget reconciliation, which he says he he's very reluctant to allow, again, it's not going to be written to please Republicans. It's going to be written to please uh 50 Democrats and the vice president. And uh that's what the policy will look like.
1: But that's what's so confusing to me. Right. He's yeah. one of the 50 Democrats, right? He like, is in fact the
0: 50th Democrat.
1: He can just say, I'm not doing the bill unless it includes X, Y, and Z. Like it's I, I think that like he himself is creating the confusion about what. the 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 position is and that like it's really i'm really mad I've been watching American politics for 18 years and I keep seeing the centrally positioned senators because it's not mentioned personally, right? It's switched, right? It used to be Jim Jeffords and Joe Lieberman. Now, you know, so it was a certain kind of Tony uh, business-friendly New Englander used to be the the moderate senator. Now it's a kind of secular moderate from a fossil fuel extraction state, him and, and Lisa Murkowski. And the centrally positioned senators refuse to seize the agenda like joe manchin could write an infrastructure plan you know joe manchin could sit down with whichever group of republicans he wants to and could champion anything that he wants to champion like he doesn't have to be this like passive whining entity who's saying that like the left would hypothetically scuttle deals he's theoretically going to to make. Like, it's totally fake, and reflects a, a, an unwillingness to accept, like, it's an awesome responsibility. Like, I agree, like, I would much rather be member 27 of the caucus, who just kind of sits around and like, says from the sidelines, like, oh, I wish we got things working in Washington again, which they all say, like, yak, 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 Congress is broken, blah, 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 blah. But like, there's like three people who are actually in a position to do something about this. And he's one of them. And like, he should do something. So I wonder
0: if and this is like speculation on my part and Andrew, you should tell me if this seems consistent or inconsistent with like, you know, what you know of Joe Manchin having done this entire profile on him. But I wonder if another way to put this might be Joe Manchin understands that there is no policy that could be designed for Joe Manchin that would ultimately make him politically successful in West Virginia. If his brand as a bipartisan isn't more important than any of his substantive, you know, policy achievements like a what we know of Joe Manchin's biography is that being able to run on particular substantive policy achievements isn't the way he's found success. So you can understand why it might not be appealing to, like, you know, ask for what you want and we'll give it to you for another thing. If Joe Manchin understands that bills that are crafted to his particular ideological interests, which aren't very strong or material interests, which are continuing to get reelected in West Virginia, don't have enough bipartisan cover that he can go back in the rest, you know, go back in the next cycle and say, yes, you're generally a red state, but I'm your man. That like he would win the Congress and lose his seat. Right. So maybe so it's, it's possible that like this is just leading to him having a very clear eyed view of the potential negative consequences for him of the alternative, and not having the clearest view of the negative consequences of the status quo, which is what we were getting into in the last segment, in terms of Mitch McConnell and company having absolutely no incentive to deal with him now either. But it doesn't seem to me to be that far-fetched if we look at the ways that Joe Manchin has found success, and also, frankly, the ways that Joe Manchin probably understands that he's an exception to a trend of nationalized politics and one that kind of needs to hang on for as long as he can rather than trying rather than really being able to shake things up in his home state.
2: Yeah, and you know, his next re-election is 2024. He's going to be 77 years old at that point and it will be a presidential year, so even tougher for a democrat to win in West Virginia than usual. So, you know, he's he's always been concerned about getting re-elected and and public opinion, but I, I don't know what he's thinking about 2024, whether he that is really his chief goal at this point or, or whether he he still thinks um, it's plausible or, or whether this will just be his last term because he won't run again. You know, as far as why doesn't Manchin use his power as the 50th vote to force like major rewrites to these bills, I think that is something that we might see unfold with the infrastructure bill uh um, yeah he told me that uh he only supported reconciliation for the covid relief plan because the president asked me to and this was an emergency that we had we needed money for vaccines but he said that this was a unique situation and that he um he wasn't going to just just do this uh with no end in sight and um so he has some other objections to the infrastructure proposal he wants it to actually be about infrastructure he says i'm not going to be able to sell all this non-infrastructure stuff as as about infrastructure to to my uh to my voters um but i think he does also just think that getting bipartisan sh- support is a good thing in and of itself and he you know we may see how this plays out because um you know the democrats don't seem inclined to write their infrastructure bill to please 10 Republicans. And uh, Manchin is telling them that, oh, you have to do that. So this is when we might see this unfold. But as far as uh, the point about, you know, it is unpleasant to be the 50th senator who you yourself in opposition to everyone in your party is uh, the person saying, no, we have to do something totally different. And yes, I, I do think it is better suited for his political personal interests uh for there to be some cover and the filibuster provides that cover because he's just like well well we just can't we just can't do anything with less than 60 votes and um changing the filibuster well that would be like a ridiculous outrageous thing to do that would destroy the country destroy the senate so obviously i can't do that therefore we're gonna have to get 60 votes
0: I have to say, I don't see the idea. I don't like I'm not really seeing this idea that being the 50th senator is a particularly like uncomfortable position for someone who wants to be a United States senator to be in. Because this both as a profession tends to attract people who who like power, like being the decider, like people coming to them and asking them for things. And the Senate in particular is designed to be a hyper individualized institution. Right. Like you have practices like the nomination hold and that kind of thing that are designed to superpower individual senators vis-a-vis their parties and vis-a-vis the body. And in theory, being the, to a first approximation, the only member of the United States Congress who really matters, certainly on 50 vote issues, should be in line with what we expect legislators to want. They don't want to just be kind of Backbenchers who don't have any sway and can't get anything done for their people. So I'm a little bit confused. I mean, I can understand that there's certainly a certain amount of scrutiny that you might not want to have, you know, depending on your personality type. But I think I'm a little confused by the idea that Joe Manchin would rather be some anonymous backbencher who's the 26th vote in his party. <laughs> I
1: don't think that that's what it is. Right. I mean, this I agree with him on. I mean, there's two there's two aspects to it. One is that, like, bipartisan bills, per se, are more popular than partisan. ones, Right. That if you present to the public, I mean, I think you've really seen this on on immigration, right? That if leaders of of both parties stand around, and they say that some compromise is like a reasonable Effort to secure the borders and also treat people humanely, like most people's inclination will be to take that at face value. Um, but if they don't, if they say like this is going to leave our borders as Swiss cheese and your family will be murdered, they like, oh, that sounds pretty bad, right? And the like actual content of like what happens is is beyond people. The other thing, though, I mean, this is where mansion really is the the last of a type that used to be much more widespread. Is that And West Virginia was like this longer than Congress was, right? But in the long years when the Democrats just had these secure congressional majorities, right? I think most of the members of the Democratic Party saw themselves as interlocutors between progressive interest groups who had policy demands and the business community, which had concerns about those policies demands. And their role, and and you saw this really prominently in the Affordable Care Act negotiations that wound up not going anywhere. But it was like, what Max Baucus thought his job was, was to say to the insurance industry, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical companies to say, look, the time has come for universal healthcare to come to America. Like, it's It's going to happen. Barack Obama is president. We're fired up and ready to go. But now you tell me, like, how can you live with this? And I'm going to make the deal, right? But it's meant to be content neutral, right? It's like, if what makes the deal is you agree to have no changes to pharma pricing, it works like that. If what makes the deal is that you do have changes to pharma pricing, it, it works like that, right? And that's the the work of the legislator, right? Because like professional legislators like Joe Manchin are not policy wonks and they're not ideologues, right? He wants to do the work of bringing people together and hashing out compromises. I I just reject his view that the filibuster is conducive to that, right? Like I think if you look at the Republican infrastructure bill, right? So I... Frankly, I sympathize with the Republican viewpoint on this, if you want to read my article on America's roads and bridges. Um, I don't think we need a $2 trillion infrastructure plan in America, Um, but it would be a lot easier, I think, to tell the White House that you need to sit down with the six Republicans who put up this proposal if six Republican votes plus Joe Manchin was going to get you a majority, right? Right what's what's challenging about the filibuster is it's so easy for the left wing members to be like what are you doing you're going to waste your time talking to this six people and you're going to come up with no bill right whereas in a in a no filibuster universe he just needs to get two or three other Democrats together and be like hey guys you know um Shelley and uh whoever else came to the table here we think they're bargaining in good faith like let's talk about this um, if you really feel that 35 billion dollars for drinking water is not enough like let's let's talk about how we can how we can work that out but like there's no reason you need to tack a 400 billion dollar elder care program onto this like we all know that's on infrastructure and you could you could get somewhere I mean I just, we'll see. But like, I will put a lot of money on whatever happens with infrastructure. It's not going to be a bipartisan deal brokered by Joe Manchin and Shelley Moore Capito. Uh, And that's because they need 60 votes. I think with 50 votes, you could get this done.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. That polarization is such in the modern Congress that uh, getting 10 Republican senators is... Is just simply too much, but you know the other side of that argument is, well, if you just get five out of fifty Republican senators, is that bipartisan in a meaningful sense? Uh, would that play as bipartisan in West Virginia? Maybe, but if-
1: but I think it's it's if it's gonna
2: pass,
1: the thing about the Energy Bill, right? Because it went through regular order and it was done in secret Congress, is that like once it was clear that this manchin Murkowski vehicle was moving like suddenly everybody wants to be part of the deal right and like you don't you don't want to be a spoiler like that's why they're bringing back earmarks you know which like seems like a good idea right if you're convinced an x100 billion dollar infrastructure bill is going to pass then as a senator it's like really in your interest to like gut check like what's my bottom line here actually Is there one thing that I really want and I can get in the deal? Otherwise, it's like everybody's sitting around and they're like, oh, you know, let's uh, we'll have a solar powered train to the moon. And like, you know, I don't know. But
2: this is why Secret Congress is so uh, so interesting as as the current equilibrium. It's because, you know, that's where deals are crafted behind the scenes that have broad support in both parties and um you know who knows how it would how it would work if if each priority got voted on separately but they all come together and put it in one big package and pass it at the end of the year and that's how stuff happens now if there was no filibuster i think that's where the point about the partisan incentives to block action or to, or to not make what biden or democrats are doing seem good come into play. Uh, And and also just from a substantive perspective, if the current equilibrium in Congress is that Mitch McConnell can get a whole lot of what he wants and what many members of the Republican Party wants through this special process at the end of the year that everyone has to agree with before a deadline. And that's the way he gets policy that he likes and, and there's mutual agreement then he is still going to um, have the incentive to try to prevent too many of his Republican senators from peeling off to to support uh, to support the Democratic priority. I think I think, uh, you know, as far as the partisan incentives go, sort of the worst partisan incentive for the minority leader is to lose a couple members and help the Democrats pass a bill that will be viewed as a Democratic bill uh, and will be good for Democrats so Republicans don't get to affect the policy much and they don't get credit for it and uh, they don't block it. So so you see there's a lot of pressure exerted by McConnell and and whoever is the minority leader to keep the party uh, unified in opposition.
0: You know, it's it's really useful thinking about this as an equilibrium because it honestly seems like the culmination of two trends that each individually seem destabilizing. Uh, one of which is the like increasingly paralytic use of the filibuster, and the other of which is Congress's increasing willingness to run up against like existential deadlines, like raising the debt ceiling, passing appropriations bills for fear of shutdown in order to get things done. And like what those have created is this semi-stable seeming equilibrium where. By the time it becomes clear that Congress has to pass something or else terrible things will happen, everybody just loads their existing policy priorities that they can, that you know, the ones that they know won't torpedo anything into a single bill. And you have, you know, a lot of legislation getting written and passed within a 48-hour period or, like, finalized and passed, you know, within a very quick period. But I'm wondering... You know, I'm wondering if you folks think that this actually is a stable equilibrium going forward uh, and if it can kind of serve as an escape hatch to the filibuster politics.
2: Well, you know, when people talk about how Congress has been gridlocked over the past decades, uh, often the examples that are given is that government funding bills, the negotiations were so tense and it comes up against these deadlines and the debt ceiling was almost breached. But the debt ceiling was never breached. And every time the government has shut down, it has reopened pretty quickly after that. So, you know, it's it is not that Congress is not doing stuff, but it's that the parties have been playing this game of chicken to uh, to kind of try to get the upper hand. But um, but in the end, like it may be a dangerous game and especially was around the debt ceiling. And I think there's uh, rightly um, a belief among Democrats that negotiating on the debt ceiling was a mistake and they should never do it again. But we didn't get the apocalyptic disastrous outcomes. And uh, and we did get, in the end, bipartisan uh, agreements to fund the government and to raise the debt ceiling. And and that has kept happening. So so I do think that is it is an equilibrium right now. I don't know whether it will be stable. Uh, I do think the changing politics about spending in the Trump years might affect these issues a bit. And I know that McConnell, in particular, he was never a fan of these super hardball tactics. And when Ted Cruz shut down the government in 2013 to try and defund Obamacare, McConnell was waiting in the wings to like after he fell on his face. It was mainly the House that forced the government shut down, but McConnell was. In was minority leader at the time, and and he was ready to like help clean things up by providing a ton of Republican Senate votes to the bill that Democrats would put together. And you know, I think McConnell knows or or thinks that if you go too far, then he's kind of endangering his own chances at. Retaking Congress. And, and he thought, you know, they did end up uh, retaking the Senate in 2014. Uh, there was a year in between that uh, voters moved on. But I do think McConnell is kind of intrinsically resistant to these types of tactics. But then again, so was John Boehner. He said that uh, raising the debt ceiling once he won the speakership was going to be the first adult moment of the new Congress. And then he became totally captured by the extremes in his party and, and couldn't put together the votes to do it. And and it was uh, very nearly a disaster. So I guess my answer would be it, it kind of depends on uh, the craziness of uh, the Republican right and and how that uh, manifests uh, in
1: the coming uh, year or two. But here, here's where I, I will, because I've been critical, because I think I think Manchin misreads the procedural landscape, but where where I agree with him. And I think he has an important insight that more people need to learn is that it's just not the case that like the public is demanding really, really large departures from the policy status quo. And like, you know, what what we mean by gridlock, like a level of gridlock such that there's debt ceiling breaches and things like that, like that's that's quite bad. Um, And every time there's a government shutdown, like the public is really mad at the party that's perceived to have caused it, right? But what a lot of people, just like more ideological people, uh, people who write takes about politics, people who consume takes about politics, people who work for advocacy groups, like what they mean by gridlock is Congress won't pass bills that enact sweeping transformations of the American economy. And I mean, it's true that Congress won't pass bills like that. And it's also true that, like, depending
0: on how you word a poll question, you will get people longing for change relative to
1: the status quo. Right. And But I mean, I don't think it's the poll questions that show it. I mean, I think you see it in the results, right, that when Vermont tries to create a state-level single-payer health care plan, there's a backlash. They elect a Republican governor and he's very popular, right? And guys like Phil Scott, Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker. They don't do that much. There's not like a super, it's not like Charlie Baker has transformed Massachusetts. What he does is he watchdogs, The most egregious excesses of the entrenched Democratic majority in the Massachusetts legislature. That's Manchin as a – when he was governor, right, straddling the divide between the fading conservative faction of the Democratic Party, the labor unions, the Republican minority. It's the Asian hate crimes bill. Right. There's these hate crimes against Asians. It seems bad. People are upset. It is causing anxiety in their life. They like to see that Congress is like doing something on this. But also, like, just like ask anybody about like law enforcement and criminal and justice in America. Like it's it's a very tense issue. It would be hard to put anything down on paper that like dramatically alters the landscape. But I do think people appreciate Congress like showing that they care like taking small steps on issues that are concerning people has a lot of appeal, right? Like that energy bill unleashed a big wave of good vibes, you know, from people who were like, this is the most ambitious climate bill that's ever happened. Uh, but then all these fossil fuel Democrats were like, this is so good. We have this carbon capture money, you know, we have nuclear money, like it's p- people do like that kind of thing. I think Advocates should distinguish like the public's preference for tepid changes from quote unquote gridlock, which is like a different a different thing. We should we should do a white paper. Let's take a break. Let's talk about the deep state. All right. We've got Ideology and Performance in Public Organizations by Jörg Spenkuch, Eduardo Tesso, and Guo Shu. So they're looking at like what's what up with the bureaucracy in the United States. They document that there are big partisan cycles and turnover at the top levels of the American Civil Service, which is um, by design, our system has more political appointees than most modern democracies. So you see a lot of change. Uh, at the lower levels, though, you see they call it a barbarian bureaucracy. It's protected from political interference. Um, civil servants tend to be Democrats. Uh, that gets more true at the highest levels you have political appointees, but there's kind of a U-shape. At the lowest levels, it's like all kinds of people work for the federal government for whatever reason. But the people, the more senior civil servants tend to be Democrats. They um, have, you know, advanced degrees and live in They're like Democratic Party types. So then they they try to understand, get a measure, an objective measure of performance. And so they show that when you have a Republican president – the Democrats in the civil service seem to do a worse job of monitoring contracts, and they have 8% higher cost overruns. And their interpretation of this is that there's a there's a morale effect in which when the civil servants are aligned with their political leaders, they're like – fired up and ready to go and they work really hard and do a good job uh but when republicans are in charge i don't know what they're kind of like checked out and and don't care as much about the compliance um which is interesting i the the stylized findings are not like all that shocking um but that particular interpretation of the contracting is not necessarily to be the most obvious one. So, I do want to
0: be clear about like what these findings are because it's not like they were it, they were not finding a party specific effect in terms of democratic procurement officers not doing well under Republican presidents. It was they were they were looking at Democrats because Democrats are the you know, because given building on their earlier findings, Democrats were the majority of civil servants. And they were instead of actually looking at the ideology or the partisanship of individual procurement officers, they were kind of imputing how likely the procurement officer was to be a Democrat based on where they were in the federal government and how heavily Democratic that division was. And also based on kind of the general trends of ethnicity and gender for like, Racial alignment. So what we're really seeing is procurement officers in departments that are more heavily populated by Democrats under Republican presidents, which like there's actually a couple of dimensions on which that could be uh, that could affect morale, right? In addition to it being I personally do not agree with the policy priorities of this president. It could be I don't feel that this White House particularly cares about this area of the government you know, I like don't feel that that my work is being paid attention to. And what was particularly interesting to me in that regard is that you see they look at whether the, the kind of reason for the worst performance under a misaligned president is because of hiring incentives, right? Like, whether someone who is misaligned with the president is less likely to get promoted or more likely to get demoted, or whether for that matter, like performance is likely to make them more likely to get promoted or demoted. And what they find is that there isn't any career cost for these civil servants in exercising laxer oversight of contracts, which sounds frankly like an argument for civil service reform, not in the like, the politicals should have more power way, but in the we have a system where performance and career outcomes do not align. Of course, that's not going to give, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily like the morale variable probably doesn't help there, but it seems like the traditional, you know, economist response of, well, their incentives should be brought in line with what we actually want them to be doing. (laughs) seems to be in play here. And so it does, it's an interesting finding and the authors go out of their way to, to, point this out. It's one that they don't want to see militating for more political control of the civil service, even though they are illuminating an underappreciated cost of an insulated c- civil service. They're they're saying that these are things that should be weighed together and maybe we should find a way to fix the cost without eradicating the benefit.
2: So there were two parts of this paper. One is um, uh, they matched the identities of government employees with voting records to find out how many were Democrat, how many were Republican, and how many were independent. And they managed to do so. They say there um, there were 2.8 million employees, and they managed to do so for nearly half of that sample. So um, they didn't get the whole batch. Uh, They couldn't look at um, Defense Department and other um, uh, parts of the government where there's secrecy. They
0: couldn't look at the Defense Department and they couldn't look at law enforcement officers, which frankly do seem to be two of the biggest potential sources of Republicans in the federal government.
2: Yes. So so keeping that in mind, I do think there are interesting bits to this data, which is which is which is, I think, the most broadly based because because there are over. A million uh, matches here. One thing that was interesting, obviously, it's it's not news to any of us that when Republican president comes in, uh, they appoint uh, more Republicans to the political appointee jobs throughout the government, and Democrats do the reverse. But what I thought was interesting was that um, the baseline for Republican political appointees, and, the, and these are the the presidential appointees, not the civil service, the the people that that the president has the power to appoint. Under Clinton and Obama, about 10 percent were Republican, but under Bush and Trump, about 30 percent were Democrats. So the floor for Democratic political appointees, according to voter registration records, seems to be higher than the floor for Republican appointees. And there are obviously a lot of potential reasons for that um, involving just who wants to get a government job in the first place. Um and to go into the government, um, especially, you know, now in this era of education polarization as well. But then they have this very, as far as the civil servants go, in their records, which again, are, are exclude certain potentially heavily Republican agencies, uh, there are 50% Democratic civil servants in the entire period uh, going from Clinton to Trump. And uh, the Republican percentage is mostly the same, uh, but it it drops a little bit from thirty two percent to twenty six percent. So that is just like a very stable bureaucracy. And then the the second part of the paper, which is which is the hotter take, but uh, is is a bit more speculative and and not based on as many records, is looking at what the procurement officers do, and there are, there. Are, We're talking about uh, in their data about 7000 procurement officers here as opposed to a million voting records. So this is a much more limited set of people. And to be honest, I don't know enough personally about the nuts and bolts of how procurement officers do their work on a day to day basis to have a gut check on whether I think it's plausible that they'd be like uh, have a morale effect and do a worse job when when uh, political appointees they don't like come in but that is what what their data appears to show and obviously there is a broader story of uh, of career uh, appointees uh, posing some problems for the trump administration in certain areas uh, in leaking in um, not perhaps being so gung-ho about um, (laughs) implementing the trump administration's priorities but i also think that there was a bit less of that than we might expect it wasn't the case that like there's like Utter, total deep state sabotage of the Trump administration. Nobody ever leaked his tax returns. Nobody ever, um, or well, I guess the New York we Times got them that. eventually, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but we don't think that was from the IRS. Uh, but I I do think that you know we're, we're talking about a a eight percent higher cost overruns when. People are supposedly unhappy with their jobs, and and that obviously is not enough to bolster the whole Trump administration
1: deep state narrative. Um. What, what, what's what's interesting, right? What's always made the deep state narrative odd, right? Not to say wrong, actually, but but like genuinely odd is that you know the the term sort of misapplication of a term for Middle Eastern politics but like the deep state you know in Turkey is the security services which are clearly the most republican friendly aspects of the American civil service and and permanent state and permanent bureaucracy um but they really do seem to me to be the agencies that are like most willing to go buck wild uh against the elected leadership of the country in a way that doesn't strike me as super Partisan. I mean, we got all got to revisit recently the military's uh views on the war in Afghanistan, which under both Presidents Obama and Trump, they were like quite forceful in making clear their preferences. Biden seems to have gotten them to cooperate to a greater degree. Um, but we also did have things like the final admission that like this Russian bounties story was BS, which like it always seemed like. But, you know, the, all of the really clear examples that I can think of, whether under Trump or under Obama, of the civil service, like, going rogue, come out of the, the FBI and the military and the intelligence community. And, like, it's never even, – even though, like, obviously the EPA is full of libs, like, they never do anything to damage a Republican – President. You know, I mean, you'll have a story will be like, even the EPA's own scientists think we should have strict environmental regulations, but nobody's like, oh my God, like, you know, because everyone's comfortable with the idea that, like, yeah, the professional EPA regulators like regulation and the Republican elected officials don't. Like, I, I don't think anybody sees that as a scandal. Whereas, like, oh, he's just, like, letting the Russians kill our troops is a damaging story for Trump. Um, and they also, though, appear to be much more flagrant in making things up, right? Like, we never had a story where senior EPA civil servants were like, oh, Donald Trump is personally urinating in your drinking water. Like, they could have, right? Like, they could have done, done stuff like that and been on Rachel Maddow and 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 all the rest. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, they seem like they're, they're nice fellows and, maybe do a poor job of supervising contracts. But like, that's a pretty, uh, in the grand scheme of things, as like American society flies apart due to polarization, um, like slightly less vigorous contract supervision doesn't really seem like, like the biggest problem in the world.
0: I mean, it, they're not measuring it because it's the biggest problem. They're measuring it because it's something that you can easily like, the because the government is unusually transparent about the ins and outs of federal contracting for the sake of contractors, mm-hmm. you can actually see more about like what a normal government operation looks like. So this is none of us have the expertise to know exactly how plausible their account of this is, but like they are using standard methodology on how you measure contract performance and in using contract performance as a proxy for a kind of government efficacy. Um, so you know I'm not sure that we should assume that. Just because they're seeing this effect in a thing that is less important than, like, embarrassing and possibly false leaks, that we should assume that
1: there's a substitute effect there. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I just mostly mean, like, okay, so they found this thing that could be quantified, and they quantify it, but, like, the effect's just not that big, Right. Eight percent. I mean,
0: sure. But yeah, it's just it's a question of like whether it moves your priors in a direction of, you know, this matters or this doesn't matter when the stakes are a little bit higher. And maybe you can make an account that is like, look, this is the kind of stuff where the it's not a difference between you're really, really angry at the government. Uh, or you're really, really happy about the government. It's a matter of you're really excited to go to work or you're kind of eh about going to work. And like in cases with the Trump administration and the EPA, that is a difference between people feeling like actively disrespected by the government. You know, that's not going to, that's going to be a different dynamic and wouldn't result in the same kind of, you know, casual reduction of performance. Like I could maybe buy that. I just think that it's, you know, it's more of a, we don't have any information one way or the other, on that because, frankly, outside of the question of who is a career civil servant is comfortable talking to press, which is a much more complicated conversation, you know, we just don't have enough of an N to really measure what the more serious uh, underminings would look like.
1: I agree. Alright, all right. All it's right. another thrilling episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Network. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us, enlightening us about Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe, if you're out there, uh, get in touch with me. I have some ideas about cross party caucuses, and other things, procedural maneuvers. Uh, thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday.